Heavenly Father, thank you for this uh, time that we have together. I thank you for each person who is here. And I pray that you would give us ears to hear what you want to say uh, to us. We pray for your Holy Spirit to open our ears and soften our hearts to receive your truth. And we pray this for the glory of Christ. Amen. You can be seated. I want to um, continue on looking at the most famous sermon in history, that is Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. A couple of weeks ago, we uh, looked at and I taught on the Beatitudes. And then uh, last Sunday, I wasn't here, but... Uh, Luke Davis uh, preached, and the text for that Sunday for the gospel reading was about being salt and light. And then today we get into the teaching that uh, Jesus gives us. And what he's doing in this section in the Sermon on the Mount is uh, he's criticizing uh, the religious leaders of his day uh, for how they understood righteousness, that is, how they understood what it meant to please God. And he's, he's making a distinction between their understanding of righteousness and the righteousness that he is calling his disciples to live out. Um, he is making a distinction between his version of righteousness and that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were the experts in the Jewish law. And I think Jesus' criticism applies today to those outside of the church and even more concerningly to those inside the church in terms of how he understands righteousness. Because at one point Jesus said that the, the aim of the scribes and the Pharisees, he says this in Matthew 23, 5, was to appear righteous in the eyes of other people. In the eyes of others. He says, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Matthew 23, 5. So that was their version of righteousness. It was an exterior righteousness to be seen by others. But Jesus says to his disciples and the Sermon on the Mount is really instruction for disciples. And it's instruction for the disciples. And it's an invitation to those who are just part of the crowd interested in what Jesus has to say. But it's instruction for those who are already in the kingdom. And Jesus says to his disciples, just before our passage, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, those who had defined righteousness by how they looked on the outside, unless it exceeds that, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus, in distinction from the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, is calling his disciples, calling us to a righteousness of the heart. Theirs was a righteousness of appearance. His is a righteousness of of the interior life. Theirs focus on exterior. He wants us to focus on the interior. What's happening in our hearts. In the depths of our very life. Our thinking. Our will. Our emotions. 
And so he begins to give examples in our reading today where he's contrasting the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, appearance, with the righteousness of the heart. And I'm going to look at what he says here about anger and lust. Don't have time to go into divorce and marriage and honesty. We'll, we'll come back to that at some point. At some point I actually want to just focus on marriage and family and do maybe a whole series of sermons on marriage and family. So I'm going to set that, that difficult passage aside for now. And we'll come back to it in the, in the future when we talk about marriage and family. But let's look at what he says about anger and lust. There's enough here for us to chew on this morning. You've heard that it was said of old, you shall not murder. Sixth commandment. Shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, according to the righteousness that's based on appearance, if you haven't murdered, you haven't sinned. You haven't violated the sixth commandment. You haven't done the, the deed of murdering. But Jesus addresses the heart here, doesn't he? The heart condition that is the seed of murder. And that is anger or wrath towards another person. That's what gives rise to the action of murder. And so he says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, what Jesus is doing here in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, is that he's not contradicting the written word of God, the law of God in the Old Testament, but rather he's giving out the fuller meaning of the law. The deeper implications of the law. He's getting to the heart. In fact, God said in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 19.17, He told His people, You shall not hate your brother in your heart. The God of the Old Testament was concerned with what was going on in the hearts of His people. And Christ, the Son of God incarnate, is bringing that out. God is concerned about the hearts of his people. And so he says, I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Now, how often do we express or, or what is our kind of common mode of expressing our anger or our wrath against another person? Now, we, we don't pick up guns or knives. We're not that kind of people. We don't use those kind of weapons, but we can use our tongues as a weapon to destroy other people out of anger or to attempt to do that. We can use our tongues. We can use our lips. We can use our fingertips <laughs> on our computers and through social media to speak against another person. And, and, and so that is what Jesus is getting at here. You scribes and Pharisees, you think you haven't violated the sixth commandment because you haven't actually killed somebody with your hands. But what about the words that come from your mouth that demonstrate the hatred and wrath that's going on in your heart? Because it's out of the heart, Jesus teaches, that our mouth speaks. What's in our heart comes out of us. And Jesus is concerned about our hearts. And so, Jesus addresses here name-calling. 
He says, uh, if you call someone raka, that's what it says in the Greek, but here it's translated as if you insult someone. Um, verse 22, whoever insults his brother, but uh, in the original it's raka, which was a great insult. I guess nobody here has called another person a raka lately. But in that context, it was a great insult. It meant an a, a empty-headed, worthless person. You will be liable to the council. And there he's, he's, he's talking about the, the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. That was the highest law court in um, Judaism at the time. The Sanhedrin, a law court in Jerusalem. But he's probably making an analogy between that earthly court that earthly council and the heavenly council of God. You'll be liable to judgment. And then he goes on and he says, and if you call somebody uh, a fool, you'll be liable to the hell of fire. And that word uh, in the Greek is moros. We get our word moron from that. But that in Jesus' day, to call somebody that had uh, moral implications. It was like saying, you are morally kind of worthless and, um, and you deserve the judgment of God. And he's saying, if you call somebody that without repenting of that, you're liable to the judgment of God yourself. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Warning here about calling people names. Now, we don't want to get legalistic about this uh, and wooden and, 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 and kind of... Um, Pharisaical in our own right about Jesus' teaching here. Well, if I don't use those kind of words, then I'm okay. Uh, there is, on the other side, uh, a place. Uh, on the other hand, a place for righteous anger towards people who do unrighteous things and unjust things. We see that in the ministry of Jesus, don't we? He overturned the tables in the temple, the money changers. He was righteously angry because they were taking advantage of people. And in fact, in Matthew 23, Jesus says about the scribes and Pharisees, he calls them blind fools. He uses this very word. But it's not coming from a place of rage and anger and hatred towards them. It's coming from a place of righteous indignation because they were, as he said, being blind guides for people and taking advantage of people. And uh, Jesus called even the scribes and Pharisees to repentance. So it wasn't out of hatred that he used those terms. But we're called to um, here examine how we use our words against other people. He's warning us against using names to express hatred towards other people. And you might say, well, what's the big deal? They're just words. Well, we all know that words can be a very big deal. We can dehumanize another person made in God's image through our words. We can devalue them. Characterize them as worthless. If you know somebody who grew up in a name-calling home or a verbally abusive home, or if you were raised in such a home, you know how damaging that can be. That name-calling can be. So disciples of Christ are called to turn away from hatred to turn away from that kind of angry name-calling. And then, the antidote to this, this antidote to anger towards others that creates division, the antidote is reconciliation. 
We're to turn away from anger in our hearts, turn away from name-calling, and turn to the very person with whom we are at odds. And turn to them in order to pursue reconciliation. That's how we deal with our anger in the body of Christ, in our family life, in our community, is that we move towards the person prayerfully seeking reconciliation. And that's where Jesus goes with this teaching. And I don't have time to unpack all that he says here, but, but he says if you're in a worship service and you remember that somebody has something against you, then you should go to that person. And pursue reconciliation. If you're in a conflict, even a legal conflict with another brother or sister, as you are headed towards that reckoning in the day of court, try to resolve it before you get into that court situation. Pursue reconciliation. Is there somebody that you need to pursue reconciliation with? Somebody that you're angry with? Somebody that you're at odds with? I'd be happy to help anybody who feels that, that need to pursue reconciliation and to help walk you through biblical steps of reconciliation. That's the antidote to anger in our heart. Do we need to repent of name-calling, of using our words to dehumanize other people? God has reconciled us through his work in Jesus Christ. This is how he has shown his love to us, isn't it? We were once at odds with him because of our sins. But he, by the cross of Christ, reconciled us to himself. So in doing this, we are demonstrating, we are living out the kind of love that God has shown us in Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to be as disciples of Christ. So he warns against anger in the heart. And if that isn't uncomfortable enough, the next thing Jesus talks about is lust in the heart. He addresses anger in the heart. And now he deals with lust. You've heard it said that thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Lustful intent. That's the way the ESV translates that. And, and, and that's, that's good because it makes a distinction. Um, recognizing somebody is attractive isn't lust. What is being said here is looking at a person in order to lust, lustful intent, for the purpose of lusting after another person. And so Jesus is saying here to the scribes and Pharisees who, again, thought of themselves, or some of them at least, that they were righteous in this area of moral and sexual purity because they had not committed adultery. He's saying, well, what about looking at someone who's not your wife with lustful intent? There's not a purity of heart there. You've already committed adultery in your heart. Now, of course, the act of adultery is much worse than the thought of adultery because the act of adultery tears relationships apart. Tears marriages apart, tears families apart. But Jesus' point here, once again, is that God looks at the heart and he calls for a righteousness of the heart. And adultery begins with the seed of lust. And so, he, Jesus is saying here, let's be careful about what's going in our, on in our, in, our, in our interior life. Because left unchecked, they can lead to even greater disaster. 
The scribes and the Pharisees could think of themselves as righteous, even though they looked lustfully at women other than their wives. And Jesus calls here for his disciples to be radically ruthless in detaching themselves from things that incite lust. And so he's using these metaphors, exaggerated imagery. If your right hand causes offense in this area, causes you to be entrapped in this area, that's the imagery here. There are things that can trap us into lust. Then you need to cut it off. If your eye causes offense, traps you in this area of lust, then, you're, then you ought to cut it off. A trap means that you don't have freedom. God wants to give his people freedom in this area. But there are traps. And so we need to be radically ruthless, he says, in cutting ourselves, in cutting those things away from our life that would entrap us in this area of lust. It's better to be deprived of these things now, Jesus says, than to be deprived of God's presence forever to end up, he says, in Gehenna, which is translated here as hell, a place of abandonment from God, away from the presence of God. And so in our culture, we need to just be continually reminded that lust, friends, lust is not love. Lust is not love. Lust is turning another person, made in God's image, into an object, into a thing. And we live in a culture that continually incites us to lust. From the Social media, from the movies to music stars to halftime shows at the Super Bowl. Continually inciting lust. Turning people into objects. People turning themselves into objects of lust. And the most extreme example of this today, isn't it, is pornography. Nancy Piercy, in her book on the body, a Christian theology of the body, says that we could paraphrase Jesus' words in Matthew 5:28 as saying, Don't objectify women. Don't strip them of their identity as full persons by reducing them to objects of lust. What might it mean for you and for me if we obeyed Jesus' words and we were ruthless in cutting ourselves off from things that incite lust? What would it mean in our viewing habits, in our reading material? What would it look like to protect and train our children in this area of purity of thought? Nancy Percy reports that the average age a boy first encounters pornography in our country is nine years old. And by the time he's an adult, he has consumed it for more than a decade. So how is that going to influence how the boy looks at women and how is that going to influence his marriage how are we as parents and grandparents going to talk to our children about the dangers of this train them and protect them in this area Jesus is calling uh, us to be pure for our good and for the good of other people so Purity of heart in the areas of anger. 
purity of heart in the areas of lust. This is hard stuff. So I think it would be good to just pause right now, take a deep breath, and remember the life-giving grace and mercy of Jesus as well. The mercy of Christ, the forgiveness of Christ. This is so hard because we are in this ongoing battle with the world, our own sinful flesh, and the devil. And so when we're reading the Sermon on the Mount, we're listening to the, the law of Christ here, it's good to remember the grace of Christ and to repent of our sin in this area, but also to know that we're never beyond the reach of the help and mercy of Christ. That we can't do this in our own strength, so by reading these words, it should cause us to reach out for the help of Christ to grow. He doesn't demand or doesn't expect he doesn't base us on our, his judgment on our perfection in these areas, but he calls us to make progress in these areas. And we cannot do it in our own strength. It's kind of like a couple months ago, uh, Noah and I were lifting weights together. And that doesn't happen too often. Believe it or not, I'm not much of a weight lifter. I know you can't tell, but, uh, <laughs> but he is. My oldest son, 19 years old. And so... We got in a situation where we were lifting weights together and I'm laying there on the bench and he could, Dad, you can do another, you know, another 20. And he keeps adding more and more weight. So it gets to the point where he's the guy that's doing all the work. You know, I'm exerting some effort, but he is the one that's lifting the weight uh, for me. And I thought that's kind of a metaphor with how it is with growing in righteousness. Now, we cannot do it in our own strength. It's too Difficult. It's too high of a bar for us to achieve in our own strength. Yeah, we have to put forth the effort, but it is Christ, and here's where that analogy breaks down. It's not so much that Christ is just lifting, and we do as much as we can, and then he takes the bar and lifts it up. It's that the whole way, Christ is in us, giving us the strength to do what he's called us to do. We need to cooperate with the grace of God in these areas of anger and lust. And by His Spirit, He helps us to grow in ways that we could never do on our own. Friends, in a world of, a, of rage, Christ can help us grow to be less angry. In a, in a time of great polarization, Christ can help us come together to reconcile. In a world that's awash in porn and lust, Christ can help us grow in purity of heart so that we don't see other people as objects, but people made in the image of God. Christ can help us love as he loved. Christ, who loved us to the point of dying on the cross, loves us and forgives us when we fall short of these ideals. But we're not to dismiss his teaching as if it's an impossible idea. This is the life that Christ calls us to. This is the life, the, the radical, countercultural life that Christ calls his disciples to live in. The kingdom life. The kingdom life that he empowers us to live. And that he will 
help us to grow in. This is how people of Christ become salt and light. Remember, that's what he's calling us to be. How are we salt and light in a morally decaying and spiritually dark world? Well, that's how, what he is teaching right here. This is how his disciples become salt and light. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world by being people like this. By being people whose righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees who are just focused on the externals. Looking good in the eyes of other people. We're called to be people whose righteousness is the righteousness of the heart who aim to please God and to love others through Christ's strength. So is that who we are? Are we concerned about this interior life? A righteousness of the heart? Is that who you want to be? Christ will give you the strength. Christ is calling you to this. A righteousness of the heart. I believe that for all the spiritual darkness of our day, there are some people searching for light. And in our day of spiritual blandness, and moral decay, some people are searching for salt and some people are hungry and thirsty for righteousness. Remember that in the Beatitudes? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and they will be satisfied. It's more than just looking good on the outside. One scholar has traced how in America there was a shift that happened culturally at the turn of the 20th century. There was this shift that took place from an emphasis on being a person of character to being a person of compelling appearance. And this scholar named Warren Sussman, he traced it out. He looked at advice manuals. In the old days, young people uh, read advice manuals on what it meant to be you know, a full, complete human being. Today they go to TikTok. But before the days of TikTok or social media... There were these advice manuals. And in the early, um, uh, late 19th century, he says, the advice manuals used terms like work and morals and integrity. But then in the 20th century, the language began to change to terms like attractive, creative, and forceful. And he says it was a change, quote, away from the invisible moral intentions towards the attempt to make ourselves appealing to others. Away from what we actually are to refining our performance for an audience that sees the exterior. This is what has happened in American culture. It began a long time ago in the modern world. But it's on steroids now, thanks to social media. A concern with appearance rather than who we really are. A kind of righteousness by approval of others rather than a life of purity before God. And so, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls us to reject that kind of surface, fake righteousness. Reject that and pursue righteousness of the heart. To renounce anger and lust, to pursue reconciliation and purity. He calls us to this. He empowers us for this. And friends, it's for our good. It's for our good. It's for the good of our neighbors, our family, our churches, our community. And it is for the glory of God.
Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for calling us to this, and thank you, Lord, that you empower us for this. This life of righteousness. We thank you, God, that with you we are never beyond your reach of grace and mercy when we stumble and fall in these areas. But with you also, you give us your spirit so that we can become the people, more and more, the people you call us to be. And that that can be life-giving to us and to others. Help us to grow in this for your glory, we pray. And everyone said, Amen.